Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Um, today, we are officially beginning our series on the pillars or distinctives of our church. That is, the convictions that will lead us forward into the future. And the first of these pillars or convictions, as I told you last week, is the good news of the kingdom. It's the good news of the kingdom. So this morning, I want to retell a familiar story, but from a different angle. I want to tell the same gospel, but from a different vantage point. And the hope is that something familiar will become new to us again. But before I want to do that, or before I do that, rather, I want to introduce you to our enemy. I want to introduce you to our enemy, and that is the privatization of the good news. It's the privatization of the good news. Now, why is this our enemy? Because, in reality, it is the main threat to our vision for the church. You might understand the direction. You might sympathize with the direction. But you will not see the need for it till the privatization of the gospel becomes your enemy. So what is the privatization of the gospel? I think an illustration will help. Um, in 10th grade, in my AP English class, the teacher, I will not name names, had us debate gay marriage. She split the class up into two groups, one for and the other against. Now, I was assigned to the against camp. And in our discussion, the argument centered on religious grounds, essentially, argument was, it's forbidden in the scriptures. Now, I cannot remember uh, what the argument was that the four camp proposed, but it won, right? Big surprise. But the reason that our teacher said that this was the case was that those religious arguments that we made, arguing from the scriptures, arguing from religious convictions, those arguments are not valid in the public life. Those are private matters, and they cannot be imposed upon a nation. Instead, the public sphere, right, where we order and govern our life together, is ruled by neutral reason. It's a secular space, in other words, where debates are settled on facts, not belief or opinion. Right? Does that sound familiar? That is the privatization of religion in general, and the good news in particular. Our society tells us that religion is fundamentally a private matter. It pertains to otherworldly things. And temporal matters belong to secular reason. The stuff of this life belongs to um, yeah, reason in general. Now, why is this such an enemy? Because when we accept that definition... The good news is distorted almost beyond recognition. When we accept that definition of the good news, it's distorted almost beyond recognition. Well, how so? Well, when the good news is privatized, meaning it no longer pertains to the rest of life, but merely, you know, pure spiritual matters, when it's privatized, then it's individualized. And when it's individualized, then it's commercialized. It's downgraded from a message about the universal lordship of Jesus over 
all things, heaven and earth, it's downgraded to a personal message about God's purpose for your life. The good news becomes a matter of personal consolation and encouragement and inspiration. And the church becomes a service provider, dispensing self-help to its customers. So the gospel, in this understanding, is stripped of all its radical and earth-shattering implications, and it's domesticated. Don't worry, we say. It's a personal thing. Jesus is my personal Lord. His Lordship leaves society and politics and all the rest of it perfectly intact. Don't worry. But does it? Does the gospel leave everything intact? Is that the gospel? Is that the message that transformed the ancient world? Now, I hope to demonstrate um, this morning that the good news is not a religious message, right? Whatever that means. Instead, it's a universal announcement that pertains to all people and all affairs of human life. Jesus is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I want to do that by simply telling the story of Jesus' life, but doing it again, hopefully from a different angle. Jesus began his ministry with an announcement. Next slide, please. Proclaiming, Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus began his ministry with these words, and he arrives on the scene of human history as the end of a long story, and that story is the kingdom of God. He announces that time has been moving toward this decisive moment. That history has come to its culmination, and now the promised kingdom is at hand. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what is this kingdom that Jesus proclaims? Well, it's essentially about regime change. Jesus calls his message good news, or in the Greek, euangelion, which in the ancient world was simply a political announcement. Now, in our day, euangelion would be something like a State of the Union address where the president stands before the nation and he says that the war is over and the troops are coming home. That is euangelion. That is good news. Good news might be that the president has signed the Emancipation Proclamation and the slaves are being freed. Things are changing. Good news is when we turn on the TV and find out that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. In short, euangelion is news, but more specifically, it's an announcement that things are changing and that it has implications for all of our lives. So Jesus' good news, his euangelion is about a kingdom. In the original, the word kingdom is basalia, and it means simply rule or reign. Jesus' proclamation is this. God's reign is at hand. A regime change is underway. God is acting to put things right and to restore his creation. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like takeover. 
It looks like invasion, one kingdom breaking in against another. So the good news that Jesus comes proclaiming is an announcement about a kingdom. Now, it takes us back to when things went wrong in the first place. God's benevolent reign over heaven and earth was resisted in the garden, first by the serpent and then by humanity whom he deceived. And that original kingdom and all of its pristine glory slowly began to unravel. And it was no longer God's will that was being done, but now there was another will being done. Hostility was introduced to our relationship with God, to our relationship with one another, and even to the natural order. One way to frame up the problem is in, term of, in terms of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth have been torn apart, as it were, because earthlings have rebelled against the God of heaven, the life of earth no longer reflects the life of heaven. But when God's kingdom comes, that's going to end once and for all. Earth is going to be put back in harmony with heaven so that the will of God will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So things are changing. A regime change is underway. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus announces. And because things are changing, the kingdom proclamation comes with the command, repent and believe in the gospel. It's less about believing in certain doctrines and more like enlisting in a service, in service to a campaign. God's reign is at hand. Things are about to change forever. Therefore, the message is, get with the program. Imagine, uh, by way of illustration, that you're a politician, and you're serving a corrupt and tyrannical king, and you're carrying out his demands over his kingdom, over the people. And let's say he's defeated in battle. He's captured and he's executed. And now there's a new king. The conquering king is taking over. Now, what are you going to do with your position high up in his kingdom? Well, you have two options. You can resist and face the same fate as your previous king, or you can repent and serve the new king. Jesus' message is something like that. God is taking over. The old regime is toast. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. It's essentially a command for us to change our allegiance. Scholars are quick to point out that that word believe is not the best way to translate the Greek word pistis. Its meaning is something closer to trust or even to give allegiance. Again, Jesus calls his disciples not merely to believe in him and to carry on as normal, but to follow him to give their allegiance to Him. God's reign is at hand, and therefore it demands repentance. It demands that we change our allegiance from one reign to one kingdom to another. So, 
Jesus shows up on the scene of human history proclaiming a kingdom in his words. And he demonstrates that kingdom in his deeds. He proclaims the kingdom in his words, and he demonstrates the kingdom in his deeds. Now, he's rather explicit about this. In one of his encounters with the religious leaders, um, Jesus has been casting out demons, and they say he's casting out demons um, not by God, but by Beelzebub. He's casting out demons by the ruler of demons, they're saying. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And he tells them the true meaning of his exorcisms. He says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus compares his exorcisms to the plundering of an enemy's house. The enemy is bound up, set aside, and his property is carried away. In other words, Jesus' ongoing conflict with the demonic powers throughout his ministry is arrayed upon the enemy's kingdom. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He is driving out the evil, malevolent powers that stand behind this visible disorder. The kingdom is present in power when demons are rebuked, when men and women are freed from unclean spirits, when the man formerly known as Legion sits at Jesus' feet dressed and in his right mind. Jesus' exorcisms are a demonstration of the power of his kingdom. But his miracles are also a demonstration of the same. When the kingdom is near, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. God's reign in and through Jesus restores creation to its original purpose, where everything was indeed very good. Jesus announced regime change. When God takes over, even the natural order is delivered from its bondage. The kingdom restores things to God's original intention. And so Jesus, who announces the kingdom, and who is beginning to be seen as king in the eyes of the people, then goes about creating his own community. He gathers people around himself, and he calls them his disciples, that is, his followers or his learners. He appoints 12 main disciples, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, alongside an even wider following, and then he teaches them how to live in his kingdom. He instructs his disciples, this is what it means to live under the reign of God. And so when the kingdom comes, Things are turned on their head. Consider the subversive and paradoxical nature of Jesus' teaching. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and his new community that he's forming is out of sync with the normal order of the world. 
according to the normal moral calculus, there is no blessing in poverty or mourning or meekness. In fact, these things are indications of the opposite. But the kingdom changes things. God's reign, as it appears on earth, turns the existing moral order on its head. The first become last, and the last become first. Jesus says that prostitutes and tax collectors will make it into the kingdom before the scribes and Pharisees. God's reign confronts and upends the normal order of things. It's no wonder that the national leaders feared Jesus. Here is a man, try to imagine this for a moment. Here is a man with extraordinary authority, like nothing anyone has ever seen. And he's proclaiming a kingdom. He's healing disease. He's casting out demons. And he's gathering his disciples around them and telling them, here's what it means to live in this kingdom. Jesus is not merely a religious teacher, right? A mystic or sage who's concerned about otherworldly matters. He's more like a king, a revolutionary, a threat to the existing order. You know, one way to test our understanding of Jesus, to discern whether it's faithful to the scriptures or not, is to ask a question, and that is Is he crucifiable? Meaning, would Jesus, as you understand him, make the Jews and the Romans murderously hostile? Would Jesus, as you understand him, drive people to such frustration and anger that they feel like the only thing to do with this person is to eliminate him, to remove him from the picture? Because the real Jesus, the one presented to us in the Gospels, did. All right, who is going to want to crucify a teacher of timeless morals, if that's what Jesus was? Telling everyone to love God and to love their brothers and sisters. What's so offensive about that message? Or who's going to want to put to death someone who tells us how to go to heaven when we die? Or how to have a relationship with God? What is so terrible in that message that Jesus has to be put to death? The reality is that no one is going to murder or take out anyone for those purposes. And there were many such spiritual teachers, they were called rabbis like that in ancient Judea. They didn't pose any threat to the status quo because they were dealing with you know, purely spiritual, otherworldly matters. And the Romans were happy to tolerate them because their empire was untouched. Right? You have all that. You, 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 you preach this message as much as you want, and we'll go on ruling the world. It, it provided no threat to them. They were happy to tolerate. But not so with Jesus. His proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God made him a threat. God's reign on earth, as it is in heaven, demands change. Religiously, politically, economically, morally, and etc., God's reign leaves nothing untouched. Jesus appeared as a dangerous figure to the religious leaders. Imagine, here's this upstart prophet 
this new teacher, and he's a lawbreaker. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, right? Him and his disciples don't obey the rules of the Pharisees. He disregards the purity regulations, right? He eats at unclean tables. He associates freely with sinners. He even has the audacity to bypass the temple and the sacrificial system, claiming to have authority to forgive sins in himself. You don't need to go to the temple for that. I'll forgive you. He denounced the scribes and the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind. He was a threat. He was no less dangerous economically. When Jesus entered the temple, he cast out the money changers with a cattle whip. It was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations, but it had become the chief promoter of economic injustice. Jesus cleansed the temple, and instead he taught his disciples to take no care for their lives. Life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. He told his disciples to give freely to anyone who asks of you. If they want your uh, cloak, give them your shirt too. And he told them to store up their treasure in heaven where moth and robbers and thieves do not destroy. He was a threat. And most particularly, he was a political threat. Again, put yourself in that situation. Jesus proclaimed a kingdom, and he's going around acting like a king. He opposed the establishment, and the masses were taking his side. Jesus knew where the pressure points were, one commentator notes, and he courageously acted and spoke uh, to provoke repentance with the full realization that he would, in in fact, provoke nothing but fury. Again, God's reign on earth as it is in heaven demands change. Things must come into alignment with his righteousness and justice. So allow me to summarize everything that I've set up to this point, and it's very simple. The good news of the kingdom is the redemption and the transformation of the entire created order. It's not merely a spiritual kingdom, meaning that it has nothing to do with the earth, meaning that it leaves society and politics intact. Nor is it a synonym for individual salvation, essentially a personal message about how you can go to heaven. Now, Jesus does say that his kingdom is not of this world, but he doesn't mean that it's, not, that it's located somewhere else and that it has nothing to do with the world. Instead, it's not of this world as in it's not derived from this world. In other words, it's not part of the fallen order. It's from heaven, and it's coming to earth. God's reign is bent on driving out evil from every corner of earth and human life. So the good news, right, to circle back around to our enemy that I mentioned at the beginning, the good news cannot be reduced to a private, purely spiritual message. It's an announcement about a universal king and his universal kingdom. Jesus does not claim dominion over this tiny sliver of life called religion. He claims the whole lot. He created it all, and he's come back to take what is his, the kingdom of God.
Now, Jesus' announcement and demonstration of the kingdom eventually becomes too much for the establishment. They fear a violent revolution. John tells us in his gospel, chapter 11, about a council that the national leaders convened to try to figure out what to do with Jesus. John tells us that they said, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What they feared was that Jesus would raise up a revolt against them. The Romans would see that the Jews couldn't govern themselves, and they would do as they had done with other nations and come and wipe them out. They will take away us and our nation. So thus, they plotted to kill Jesus to protect their own kingdom in fear of what the Romans might do. Now, rather than shrinking away from this conflict, Jesus initiates it. He rides triumphantly into the capital the last week of his life and publicly accepts the designation of king, the son of David for the first time. You can picture the scene. The masses welcome him, laying their coats on the ground before him so that he wouldn't even, his, his donkey wouldn't even walk on the dirt. They wave palm branches in the air and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew tells us that the entire capital, all of Jerusalem, was in an uproar. Jesus then, having entered in his king, enters the temple which is the locus of national power and authority. Combine the White House, the Capitol Building, the National Cathedral, and Hollywood, and you get something like the temple, how important it was to the Jewish people. Jesus enters into the temple and he cleanses it, and he pronounces judgment upon it. And essentially what he does is take possession of the temple. The religious leaders ask, who gave you this authority? He just absolutely upstaged everybody. They don't know what to do, and they just ask, well, who who gave you the authority to do this? And he doesn't even answer them. And the scripture says that he goes on teaching in the temple till um, uh, Thursday, till the day where he meets with his disciples in the upper room. He takes over the temple, and the masses are thinking, right, could you imagine this? You've been waiting for the kingdom of God, and they're thinking, this is it. It's about to happen. The kingdom is right around the corner and everything is in place. Jesus has taken possession of the temple. He's humiliated the national leaders. The entire city is on his side. All that remains, they're thinking, is to storm the Roman stronghold. This is it. We're going to take back the empire. We're going to be restored to glory and God's kingdom is going to come. Now they're right. The kingdom is right around the corner but it will come in a manner that no one expects. At that time, as you know, the people expected the king to be a political revolutionary. That is, someone to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire and to restore Israel to national glory. Now, if you never heard or understood Jesus' teachings, quite quite frankly, no one understood his teachings, You might think that he fit that bill, right? 
There's multiple times in Jesus' ministry, specifically when he feeds the masses, they want to take him at that moment and make him king. They say, this is it. Here's the one that was promised. They want to make him the king of their own imagining. And that's what most people thought, even his disciples. Sometime prior to this, that is the triumphal entry, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christos is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one or simply king. Think of King David when he was anointed for the first time or when he was declared king for the first time. The prophet Samuel went and anointed him with oil and he became king. Thus, anointed one means king. Now, Peter was right. Jesus is the Christ, the King of Israel. And from that time on, the scripture says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer many things and be killed. In other words, he reveals to his disciples the true nature of his kingship. God's reign will not be established through a violent revolution against the Romans, as many expected. Instead, God's reign will be established through the death of Jesus. Now, Peter didn't understand this. The scripture says that he took Jesus aside and he rebuked him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, next slide please, Matthew 16, 23 through 25, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to, to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must uh, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In short, the kingdom of God is established through the cross. Jesus is a king like no other. Come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And his disciples are not would-be despots lording it over the people, but servants. Such is the nature of his kingdom. And now for reasons we'll never know, one of his disciples betrays him. While Jesus was sometime ministering in the temple with the masses expecting the kingdom of God at hand, Judas sneaks away and cuts a deal with the national leaders who were seeking to kill Jesus. And he turns Jesus over to them at night. That way, the crowds that proclaimed him as king won't notice and that way they won't revolt. They can take care of him silently. And so Jesus is taken captive. He's tried in a mock and ridiculous court, and he's condemned to death by the high priest on charges of blasphemy, that he claimed to be the Christ. What further need do we have, the high priest said, as he tore his clothes? He's guilty of blasphemy. And then Jesus is turned over to the Roman soldiers for execution. They stripped him and they put a purple robe on him, which is the attire and color of royalty. 
On his head, they placed a crown of thorns, and in his hand, they put a reed, a king's scepter. And they knelt down before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they beat him, and they led him away to be crucified. Now the soldiers mocked him, obviously, because in their eyes, he was a would-be ridiculous excuse for a king. Look at the king of the Jews, right? They were rubbing it in against the people. And the masses that proclaimed him king, but a few days ago, have had a change of heart. If he is the king of Israel, they shouted, while Jesus hung on a cross, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Right? The irony of the moment is, is so thick and absolutely tragic. The very weakness, a servant king that they suppose disproves his kingship is in fact its proof. Jesus reveals his kingship not by coming down from the cross to save himself as they wanted, but by staying on the cross to save others. Jesus reigns by saving, and he saves by giving his life. He is the crucified king, and he dies, and he's laid in a tomb. Now, going by outward appearances, the disciples see in the crucifixion of Jesus an utter defeat. Their leader the one they had hoped who would bring redemption to Israel, has been executed. Their hopes for a kingdom have been absolutely dashed. But reality tells a different story. Jesus' apparent defeat at the hands of the Jews and the Romans is, in fact, a cosmic victory. The scriptures tell us that it's a judgment upon the world. Judgment is upon this world, Jesus says, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. It's a ransom price paid to deliver the world. He will give his life a ransom for many. It's a sacrifice that removes the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it's a victory over sin and evil that rule the world. He made a display of the principalities and powers by triumphing over them through the cross. On that cross, there outside Jerusalem, on the hill called the Place of the Skull, the king wins a decisive victory over all the powers that contradict his kingdom. The power that tyrannized the old creation has been broken, defeated, and overthrown. And on the third day, the king is raised from the dead in vindication, and in proof of his victory. He appears to his disciples, and it says, they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. He has passed through death and condemnation and appears to them now as the ruler of the universe, far greater than anything they ever expected. He says to them, in no uncertain terms, all authority in heaven and on earth, all of it has been given to me. He is not the earthly military king of their expectations. He is the risen Lord of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. 
As one theologian famously said, there is not one square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. So when Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God, the meaning of the kingdom of God is revealed. Do you guys know the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? It's Psalm 110, verse 1, which reads, next slide, please. The Lord says to my Lord, meaning the Father says to my Lord, the Son, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God, and this is the interpretation. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God's reign, that is his kingdom in dominion, is exercised through the risen and ascended Jesus. He is God's right-hand man, as it were, through whom he governs the cosmos and through whom ultimately he will judge and perfect his creation. And as for any enemy that opposes the rule of Jesus, they will be made a footstool for his feet, a poetic way of describing their subjection to him. All things will be brought under the dominion of Jesus. God's will, as it is in heaven, will be done in earth, and Jesus is the one who will see to it. So again, let me summarize. Jesus' mission began with him proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, and the church's mission began announcing that Jesus is Lord. It's the same message. The kingdom has arrived because the king has defeated his enemies in the cross and assumed his throne in the resurrection and ascension. In short, the kingdom of God is now. Jesus is the universal Lord of heaven and earth. He is not a mere spiritual Lord, an interior and private Lord. He is the Lord of all, all people, all places, all time. It all belongs to him. Now, how is this good news? King Jesus sounds more threatening than he does reassuring. It all lies in the purpose and nature of his kingship. The purpose of Jesus' kingship, as we've been saying, is to bring all things to obedience to God's will. And that is to drive out every last enemy from creation. No more death, no more crying, no more pain or sorrow. All things will be made new and restored to their original glory. And Jesus, the nature of his kingdom rather, is demonstrated in the cross. Jesus does not lord it over us, but he draws us to obedience, to bend the knee to his kingship through sacrificial love. He is a king, not like a despot who's served in reluctance. Served because... You could have your head lopped off. He's a king who served from the heart, who served from love and obedience because of who he is. So the kingdom is here. And it's here simply because Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God. 
But I hear common sense speaking up. Look around. How can our community, our nation, our world be described as the kingdom of God? Sin and death still reign. Now, I said the kingdom is now, and it is, but it's also not yet. Prior to Jesus' arrival, the prophets understood the end, that is, the kingdom, to come in one climactic event. It was to happen all at once, in other words. But after Jesus' arrival, the apostles understood that the event happens, or excuse me, that the end happens in two events. Jesus' death and resurrection begins the kingdom, and his return completes the kingdom. So we occupy this very strange time in redemptive history. Jesus' kingdom is already here, yet it's not completed. The enemy is already defeated, but he's not yet crushed. And thus, the defining marker of our time is conflict. Until Jesus returns, the two kingdoms, the old order and the new order, occupy the same space in time. They overlap. The powers of the new age, of the kingdom of God, are present, but the powers of the old age still remain. Uh, Greg, if you'd switch to the next slide, please. Here's how the prophets thought it was going to happen. There's this age, the present evil age, and then the coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. It was all going to happen at once, and then the age to come. Next slide, please. This is how it actually happened. The first coming of Christ and the inauguration of the kingdom of God, and then this space where the two competing kingdoms are at war with one another, and then lastly, the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom, where he will return and take everything that opposes him and do away with it, and then all things will be made new. So we can understand our time in redemptive history by calling it March 20th, but a few days away. March 20th is the first day of spring. Now, if you go outside on that day, you're going to find that winter is still hanging on. It's a time, just like right now, when the two seasons overlap. It's cold and stark outside, but there are signs of spring. The sun feels warmer. Green is beginning to reappear. March 20th is where we find ourselves, in the overlap of the ages. The decisive victory has been won. Spring is here, but... Much wintry battle remains. Jesus will return to usher in his kingdom, but until then, we only see signs and glimpses, as it were. And isn't that so true? Think of your own life. His reign has arrived in your own life, and yet it's still opposed. It's the same for every church. It's the same for every nation and ultimately the world and all the cosmos until Jesus returns. And until then, we're left with the mission. Next slide, please. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And therefore, the church is to bring all nations under his dominion by baptizing them and making them disciples. And then we are to teach them all that he has commanded. Jesus' universal rule encompasses all people and all areas of life. Every last thing will be brought in subjection to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. And it's our great privilege and honor to see to it, to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about next week how that actually happens, but I'd like to end with a doxology. First Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are you, O Lord, forever and ever. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So I'd like to invite you forward now to receive the elements of communion, to take them back to your places, um, and to thank the Lord in anticipation of his kingdom.